We direct your attention to the Word of God this morning. We are continuing our study of the kings. We are now looking at the first king of Israel, Saul. And the story is quite long, as you see there in your bulletin. I saw that and I thought, my goodness. I'm going to skip a sentence or two, but it won't be shortened up much. And we've already skipped quite a bit of the story, which I'll tell you later. But let's just hear the word of the Lord as it's narratively put in front of us. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. And so he passed through the hill country of four regions. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, and he still did not find them. Verse 5. When they came to the land of Zoph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest our father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to them, Behold, there is a man in this city, and he is a man who is in honor, and all that he says comes to truth. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. And then moving down to verse 14. So they went to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on the way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And then moving to, ver to chapter 10, the story of the anointing. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on the head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and shall save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his, his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two women by Rachel's tomb. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a skin of wine and they shall greet you and give you two loaves of bread which you shall accept from their hand and after you come to Gilbeth Elohim there is a garrison of the Philistines and there as soon as you come up to the city you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute and lyre before them prophesying then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hands find to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and before I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings, seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave Saul another heart. And all these signs came to pass that very day 
When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is all about the kingdom of God. It's all about the monarchy that is to finally and eternally be the kingdom of God. But God works through human beings. And he does it over the course of time and history. And we look back with the advantage of several millennia to these things that happened. This right here is taking place over a thousand or right out a thousand BC, 3,000 years ago. And we see the developments and some things look a little crude, some things look a little primitive, some things look a little strange to us. But this was God at work at the time among his people. And as Pete said a moment ago, God is always at work in his church among his people. And that's what God is doing here. Now God intended for his people to have a king Absolutely. And that king is Jesus Christ himself, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's bringing his people to that great moment. And we're a lot closer than they were in the days of Samuel. But we're still not where we will be one day. And we certainly are not where we will be in eternity. But the story is unfolding. The narrative is taking place. We have the advantage through the history to look back and see how God was working And one of the interesting things here, we see that God had promised them a king, but prior to the time God was going to give them an earthly king, which was King David of the tribe of Judah, in fulfillment of the prophecy of Jacob where it said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, before God was to, in his time, fulfill his promises to his people in giving them a king of his choosing, The people demanded a king. They were jumping the gun. They were getting ahead of God's call. They were moving ahead of their shepherd. That's called straying from the shepherd. And there was a time when they were acting on immediacy and emotion and their felt need. They were vexed by Philistines The sad thing is when the elders came to Samuel, as we looked at last week, and they demanded a king, it's interesting that they said, we want a king like the other nations. That was the sad thing. It wasn't that they demanded a king. That's a good demand. God has wired his people for a king. The expectation to have a king to rule over us is a good and wholesome thing. That's the way God has ordained. But a king like all the other nations. No, God had called them 
This violated the very principle of holiness that God had set forth. Listen to the precious words God said to his people back when he, when he called them. It's recorded back, if I can find it here in the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah, in chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. By the way, this is the doctrine of election. Particular election. Unconditional election. God's choosing of a particular people to be his own. The Lord set his love on you and chose you for you are the fewest of all peoples because it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God is looking to save his people from slavery. And as we saw last week, it was they wanted a king like the other nations had. And you remember Samuel warned them of what a king like the other nations would be all about. And we had a long list of the things that he would do. And principally, he would take. He would take their means of production. He would take their crops, their produce. He would take a tithe of everything they had. He would take their sons and put them into the military. He would take their daughters and put them into public works projects. And all of these things that he would do. And, and Samuel had warned them about a king like the other nations. But then God and Samuel had a talk we saw last week and God said to Samuel, go ahead and give them a king. Listen to their voice, give them a king. And next week we'll see how the tribes went about selecting their king, but Saul was a man of their choosing. And the story today is the story of how God providentially prepares a king, not of his choosing. Now this is a subtle theological point, but I want you to know that all the Bible's about God, how God thinks, how God operates, how he works, his attributes, his mighty deeds. And we need to understand more and more about how God's working. And God works in mercy. God works in grace. This is God's gracious provision even though the people wanted a king before it was time they wanted a king other than the king the Lord was going to choose the Lord nevertheless will give them and allow them to operate on free will and when free will operates it operates according to its emotions and its desires and its passions and when free will operates and it operates in all of us, it will bring about that thing that is most immediate to us. They didn't care about the things of the Lord, the promises that God made, the ways of God. They were considered only in having their own personal property protected and their lives protected principally from the Philistines. So there was an immediate need and they needed to fill that immediate need. And so it moved them to swift action and they exercised their choice their volition and they chose a king and it's Saul. Well see, God providentially knew what they were going to do and he freely allowed them to do it. Well I'm telling you one of the saddest things that happens to us is God just sort of backs off and says go ahead, 
Live the way you want to live. Do what you want to do. Follow the lust of the eye, the pride of life. And this king was, was selected according to the lust of the eye and the pride of life. This was a good-looking young man. He was about 40 years old. He was a head and shoulders taller than anyone. He was handsome. He was from a very wealthy family. He was just the guy you would look at. He just looked like a good candidate. He was the kind of guy they wanted. These people always had a, had a diminutive fear in their hearts. You remember when they came into the land, the fathers came into the land years earlier, they said, they're giants in the land. And we are as grasshoppers in their sight. This built-in insecurity, this built-in desire to want to be something else and to be more apart from God's provision drove them to get this tall, handsome, strong young man to be their king, to be their prince. He looked the part. Man looks on the um, outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. They weren't concerned about his character. And I'm going to submit to you something that might be a little controversial and you may disagree with me. And that's okay. You can disagree with me. You can disagree with anything I say at any time because I'm just a poor old boy up here trying to read the Bible and help other people understand it. But don't ever disagree with God. If it's in the Word of God, you, you know it's infallibly true and you are bound to obey, obey it. But my understanding and my interpretation is not infallible. I just try to be helpful. If I can help you in any way, great. If I say something that offends or hurts or you think something wrong, it's not going to do you any good, forget about it before you even have a chance to tell anybody else about it. Just forget I said it. But here's, here's the way I sort of read this passage, and I know I'm not in agreement with everybody on this one. But in my estimation, Saul was not qualified to be a king. And let me tell you some things about Saul. Some of them out of this passage, some of them of others. First of all, he didn't know Samuel. Samuel had been ministering in those quarters for almost 40 years. Right there in the land of Benjamin, right there in the land of Judah, right there in the southern part of, of the Israel's uh, country. He didn't know Saul, who Saul was. And yet the Bible said that Saul had had a circuit all around the place preaching and teaching. Samuel had been well known. Everybody knew that he was a prophet. Now the servant of Saul knew Samuel. But he didn't know who Samuel was. He didn't seem to have an interest in the things of the Lord. When he came time to approach the prophet, a section we didn't read in our narrative, he wanted to pay the prophet. Anybody that knows anything about a true prophet of God is he will not work for wages. That's called the error of Balaam. That was tried back on the plains of Moab back in the days of Moses. And Jude in Jude 11 speaks of it in the New Testament. It's one of the great errors of the ministry and that is being in the ministry for money. And a true prophet of God disqualifies himself when he prophesies for pay. Saul didn't know that. He was not a leader. You don't see any capacity in his life before he was king and even after how he was actually leader. He would look for others. He would wait. He even let David talk him into going out and fighting Goliath. If Saul had had a backbone, he'd have stood up to David and said, you're just too little and too young and you don't have the right weapons. There's no way in the world I'm going to put the fate of my nation in your hands. Saul we see in other parts of his life later on just never seemed to catch on. He was a quitter. 
when he went to look for the donkeys. These were very important animals. These were the, the uh, uh, females that they were going for. This was the livelihood. In fact, uh, Kish, his father, was known as a breeder of donkeys. Very important commodity in the ancient world. Your principal uh, means of horsepower in that ancient day were donkeys and mules. And he just, after three days of looking, he just gave up. And he hadn't covered much territory. He only walked just a few miles in a circuit through some regions to find it. He didn't persist in the task. We didn't read the part of the story either, but when he comes back home, after all this has happened to him, which we'll talk about in just a second, he, he speaks to his uncle. His uncle said, what did Samuel say to you? And he said, well, he told us where we, that our donkeys were found. and that everything. He didn't even tell his uncle, who, by the way, was probably Abner, who became his uh, commanding general when he became king. He didn't give any credence whatever to the things of God. In fact, I did find one commentator who summarized the characteristics of Saul. He was emotional. He was provincial. He was ignorant. He was spoiled, coddled, rich man. He was vain. Even when they, we'll see when they went to find him, he was hiding out. And we thought, oh, that's shy and that's humble. But no, that is so much pride you don't want to be put in a place where you'll be embarrassed. Sometimes humility is a fierce pride. And shyness is a fierce pride in people. They don't want to be put in a place where they'll be embarrassed. And so they shy away or they want people to pay attention to them just by their reticence. He was short-sighted. You see that in almost every decision that he made. He had no experience whatsoever for warfare or for leading God's people. He had no gifts. He had no strong personal character qualities that would have qualified him for being king. And yet, God gave him grace. People chose him, and so God says, well, this is the person. This is the man that's going to lead my people. So God steps up, and Samuel steps up to strengthen, to qualify, to support this man. Let me run quickly through the things that happened. First of all, Samuel treats Saul as a king. When he first meets him, he pays him homage. They're, they're performing a sacrifice at that time, and, and Samuel invites Saul up to the, to the house for the meal. He gives him the very best cut of meat. He puts him at the head of the table. He treats him literally like royalty. And then he says he wants to dis discuss with him, first on the mountain, on the rooftop, and then at the city gate. He tries to engage him in discussions. He asks him, what does your hand find to do? He's trying to elevate his ambitions. What is your perspective? I think all he cared about was getting his donkeys and getting back home. And now that he found out the donkeys were okay, he just wanted to get back home. And Samuel is trying to encourage him. What, what are your aspirations? What are your hopes? What, what do you want to do for Israel? What are your expectations? There was a burning zeal in the heart of David when he was a young boy. How can this uncircumcised Philistine Goliath stand out there and, and slander God Almighty? Let me have a piece of him. None of that was in Saul. In fact, even once he was sort of invited to go to war to sort of test his skills, and he, he went home. Yet, 
Samuel anoints him, pours the flask of oil. This is the first time that a king's been anointed in Israel. They've anointed priests for generations, according to Moses. But the first time that that flask of oil has been poured over a man. It's interesting to me, I imagine old Samuel had to reach up and maybe get a little bit of a step stool to get up there and anoint that head that stood a head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He embraced him. He gives him advice. He pledges to pray for him. He inquires of his ambitions. He, he lifts the conversation above that which is mundane and provincial. He tries to move Saul into a place to where he feels like a king, acts like a king, thinks like a king, gets the perspective of a king, the heart of a king, the soul of a king. You need the lion of the tribe of Judah to have those qualities. And Saul of Benjamin doesn't have them. And then Samuel does the last best thing he can. He says, God will confirm this to you this very day of your anointing by three signs. And so he sends him forth with these three signs. And these three signs are that he is to, after having an encounter with one man, Samuel, he's to meet two men. And the two men are to tell him that the donkeys are fine. And by the way, he's going past Rachel's tomb. You remember Rachel? The wife of Jacob. Benjamin, the tribe of Saul's mother. Benjamin, you remember, was the baby boy of all the sons of Jacob. Benjamin, you remember, Rachel died in childbirth, giving Benjamin. Benjamin had had a, a rough time in Israel in the days of the judges. If you read the book of Judges, you'll find that they were the most warlike tribe and they were the filthiest, dirtiest, most sinful tribe of any tribe of Israel. They did things you, that you really cannot talk about in a room like this. But yet here was the son of Benjamin about to become their king. The second sign that is given is three men. They're going up to worship. Those of you who do the inductive Bible study method where you draw things out of the text, there's a going up and a going down all through this passage. I wish I had time to trace it for you, but it's, it's significant. It tells you everything you need to know about worship in Israel. But they were going up and they were carrying the sacrifices. They had the young goats, they had three loaves of bread, and they had a flask of wine, the things that they would need in the burnt offerings and in the meal offerings and in the drink offerings to offer to the Lord. And they give Saul two of the loaves of bread. They've already treated him like a king, giving him homage, giving him a double portion of the bread of life. God is showing Saul that even though he was not God's choice, God's still going to graciously bless him. Saul will fall under the umbrella of the lavish gift of God we call common grace. That is the thing that God gives everyone. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And God is giving Saul this affirmation. And finally, 
he meets a group of prophets. And they're coming down from a place of worship. They've already been at the sacrifice and the worship. And this is one of the most interesting things. I wish I had time to spend a little time about this. But we're, we're just about out of time. But um, this band of prophets, these were an interesting bunch of boys. <laughs> Samuel apparently started these places in the circuit that we had that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago where he would go and he began to organize and they would concentrate in these bands of prophets. They would take young men. You remember the, the prophecy was rare in Israel before Samuel. When Samuel became uh, the judge, he began to teach and he began to encourage the gifts of prophecy that God was giving people and he would train young men. And in these schools, apparently, as they became more advanced and they were brought up for the very reason of advising the king an office that in God's time he would bring forth. First he had the priest governing Israel, then he had the judges, and now, now we're starting with the kings and then the prophets. So that the three offices that Christ occupies, prophet, priest, and king, are all in their nascent condition back here in the land of, of uh, Israel. But God's teaching what it's all about. And the prophets were the men who were to declare forth the word of God and they were to, to advise the king and to preach to the people. They were not hereditary. They were not by birth. But they were called of God to this special calling. And if you look through Israel's history, you'll have a prophet like Samuel was to, to Saul. Nathan was to David. Isaiah was to, to uh, uh, Hezekiah. These are, these are men who, who, who advise the king and give the king and then preach to the people. The, the office of prophet in the Old Testament is an incredible office. They, they seem to, in these schools, they would study the law of God so they could preach and they became prosecutors, kind of lawyers for the, for the law of God, bringing judgment and accusations against the people. You can read this in the writing prophets. They also studied the history of Israel. They were the ones that kept the scriptures, that, that, that kept the record of Israel and how things went and the, the books of the kings and the books of the chronicles were written by these men who had this particular prophetic office. But beyond that, they studied poetry. They were the literary men of the day. They would study poetry. Most of prophecy in the Old Testament is written in Hebrew poetry. You can just open your Bible and you can see it written out there in poetry form rather than prose. But they were also musicians. They were singers and players of instruments. In other words, the worship of the Lord from the very beginning has always involved instrumentation, contrary to what some groups try to tell us. God's people have, and it's interesting to see the array of instruments. They had a flute, wind, lyre, stringed instrument, harp, stringed instrument, and a tambourine, a percussion, all the elements of an orchestra. All of them are right here. There's your wind, there's your percussion, and your strings. God's people are people who, when they've been up to worship and they come down and their sins are forgiven and blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven and their hearts are on fire for God, they just are beside themselves with thanksgiving and praise and worship and wonder to the Lord their God. When they've been up to the high place where the sacrifices are made and now they come down, they come down with singing and shouting and preaching and praising and all kinds of messages and, and this band was doing all of that, this band of prophets. And the Lord graciously pulled Saul right into their company. This man who was virtually bereft of spiritual gifts and spiritual life all of a sudden got caught up in this intense worship and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him 
And he was given the gifts that he needed. And the Bible says he turned into another man. And a couple of verses down he says, And God gave him another heart. Now this was not probably regeneration as we understand new covenant regeneration from Ezekiel and Jeremiah and and John and Jesus and Paul but this was the mighty working of God doing everything he could in his grace to bestow and endow upon this man Saul the capacity that he would need to lead his people he was not doing it for Saul's sake he was doing it for his people's sake his covenant people It'll just be my guess that there's been lots of priests and pastors and bishops installed over the years that weren't qualified for ministry. But God blessed them and helped them and honored them and supported them and gave them all that he possibly could give them to help them get through for the sake of the people, for the sake of his heritage. We know the story of Saul, and we'll see it how he just, it never worked out. Saul never really had a heart for God. Saul operated in the flesh. He was just a guy that looked good in a dark robe, but he wasn't a man of God. Now this tells us a couple of things that ought to just worry us to death. Have I ever been to a worship service that got all excited and Maybe shouted a little and sang with exuberance. Maybe walked an aisle. Maybe signed a pledge card. Maybe Was that all it took to be born of the Spirit of God? I don't think so. It's possible to get caught up in the exuberance, in the excitement. Because music and things hit us in the emotion and move us in so many ways. The Spirit of God can use that vehicle. But just because we get all enraptured in religion doesn't mean we've come to the true God or that he belongs to us or that we belong to him. It's a warning, but it's also a comfort. It's a comfort to know God's in control, (laughs) that God is going to rule by his grace. He's going to bring us through that. Did you know Saul ruled as many years in Israel as David did or as Solomon did? Long tenure. 40-year reign. And all of that time, even though he was inadequate, God was more than adequate. God's blessing and help for his people in defeating their enemies and establishing some kind of and holding them together. In the final analysis, we must look not to our earthly shepherds, but we must say with David, the Lord is my shepherd. Over and over, the prophets, especially Ezekiel, have a lot of problems with the leaders in Israel. But over and over, he keeps assuring us that the Lord says, I will shepherd my people. Get your eyes off of the tall, handsome leaders and put your eyes on the Lord and let him rule in your heart by his grace. 